Hey everyone, this is Arnold Byun with Warm Welcome. Welcome back to another episode of Weekly Welcome, where we interview Asian American chef owners, restaurateurs, and founders. Today, we're sitting down with Vanda of Ira Thai. It's located in Westchester, Los Angeles, maybe a mile away from LAX airport. And it's really an institution. It's a Thai institution. It's opened in 2004, coming up in 20 years. It's run by three siblings. Vanda is one of three, and they took it over from their parents. And Vanda got involved in 2010, so she's been running it since since then for the past 12 years. And there's a lot of lessons here that she's learned along the way. Uh, we talk a lot about balancing the past, present, and future, as well as what's ahead for them as a family business, the inner workings of a family business, and what that dynamic is like, the challenges there. Um, a lot, a lot of things to unpack. So hope you enjoyed this episode, and I will circle back with you at the end. So both my parents um, worked for Thai Airways in Bangkok and they left that, you know, their Bangkok Thai Airways job to um, come to America. My dad came first and he was actually um, here for a little while just to scope out what it would be like for the family and what school would be like, where we would live and um, took on some odd jobs, you know, cooking in restaurants as well as doing opening his own janitorial like route where he would clean bathrooms of gas station. And so he purchased like a big, you know, a kidnapping van, like a white van where you throw all of the supplies back there. And he started his, you know, route and would offer his services to these gas stations. And then realizing that, you know, it actually would be great to bring the whole family. So he went back to Thailand before his visa was up picked up all of us and made sure that we, you know, moved all of us here. Mm. And all of us was my mom, my brother, who's a year younger than I and myself. So I was about five years old mm -hmm. and it was about um, the summer time. And he knew that school was going to start. So it was a good time to come um, and start school in the, begin the, the beginning of the year. So it's an easier transition. Um, I remember that like I got off the plane and the first thing we drove down like La Cienega, I didn't know it was La Cienega, but there were like cranes that, you know, the oil cranes mm -hmm. that, and I was like, well, America has dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> this place is going to be so rad. And then, you know, settling in at that time, it was um, a good friend of my dad who had a two bedroom apartment, who also had a child mm. under the age of five. Mm. And we were going to share this apartment with them. And they haven't really moved out of that second room. So we had to like, I think for a few nights, live in their living room oh, wow. for a bit before we began sharing that second room. Um, and I remember my dad leaving to go work the next day immediately because he already had his work and his like routes that he did. And my dad is a serial entrepreneur. Even when he was working in a restaurant for someone else, he always had side gigs. And I think that comes from, you know, a background of just being uncertain about where, you know, where your next meal will be and not having that capital that, you know, some of us are privileged to be born with. So he's always constantly <laughs> making sure that, you know, we're, we're secure and, and everything is 
can, can still be good as much as he can. So um, lots of that and fast forward. And my parents took odd jobs. My mom was a seamstress so that she can work from home so that we wouldn't have to pay childcare. Uh, my parents had many restaurants as I was growing up, one in East LA, one in Montebello. Um, then we moved to Westchester, which is right down the street from where Ayara is when I was in middle school. And um, they started Ayara when I was, I graduated from college. Mm -hmm. Between that time, uh, Thai Airways came back into the picture again. Mm. And Thai Airways had flights that landed in Los Angeles. And my parents turned our home kitchen into a catering kitchen to make meals for the crew that had a, a long layover and the crews didn't sleep at, you know, the time, the hours that locally that we sleep, they were, they retained their, um, the local time, the, the Thai time. So they would sleep at odd hours and there wouldn't be access to food. So we would pack up meals for them and they would pre-order at that time, send a fax uh, during their layover in Japan. So we would get a fax. So we would know like once this flight lands, these are the following names and what meals they want. And then we'd package it, bring it to the hotel and then collect. And that was, that was our job, our family job for a good, I want to say like 10, 12 years. Wow. Okay. And obviously being a, a restaurant kid kind of like getting born into the situation and, and I, I can relate because I, you know, was a restaurant kid later, like maybe high school is when I, when my dad got involved in the restaurant business. Um, it's not something you choose, right? You just, you just kind of like, <laughs> you're doing it. You know, like all of a sudden you're like packing boxes and ringing up people. Like, what are some like fond memories there? Like of, of you helping out, you know, early on? Oh, I mean, even the earliest, like the first restaurant I remember in East LA, just, you know, rolling up utensils and, um, rolling like produce bags, you know, to save time, um, plucking chili, the stems of the Thai chili or plucking basil. Those are like simple tasks. And I think we, then I grew, grew my skills up to cooking rice. They finally trusted me with the rice. And it's not like you learn how to cook rice on a home cooker. It's like a commercial gas stove, uh, rice cooker. So learning that, learning, um, how to make chili paste with a mortar and pestle, uh, for a long time when we were doing, catering for Thai Airways, I was in charge of making our chili paste. Mm. So it was after school, um, stone mortar and pestle. You know, we sit on the floor make sure that you have like a newspaper under you. This is like, you know, not health regulated, obviously. So that you sit traditionally and, and, and pound chili and garlic in a, a, in a stone mortar and pestle. Wow. Yeah. I'm I'm so curious. Like growing <laughs> up, did you did you first of all did you like what you were doing in terms of just helping out the family? And then secondly, what did you see for yourself as like your future? Like what did you want to do? I there is a lot of resentment, and I think it's it's interesting. I'm the oldest of three. Uh, we all experience we're close knit family, so we all experience the same like experiences, mm. but then we all took away different experiences. Mm. So these incidents, like uh, we even recall, like. Do you remember the time something something and then like 
my sister felt a different way. My brother mm. felt a different way. We kind of took from that experience differently. But yes, I think overall, like for me, it was a little bit of resentment. Why, you know, do I have to keep up with my grades, do all my homework? And there's even, there's tons of chores. It's not just like laundry, but it's doing like part of my family's business. It's, you know, um, and also calling for my parents, like English oh, isn't yeah. their, oh, yeah. their first language, right? I mean, sure, every immigrant kid has to do that pretend you're a little older call the phone company the cable company to make sure like our bills are sent or um insurance company that calls you know here talk to 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 vanda they won't even say like my daughter like vanda mm. and then you have to sound a little older so they take you more seriously so um there's lots of that that you know we all had to do i didn't think that i would at that time i mean looking back 13 year old Vanda. I don't, I did not never dreamt of doing anything in food. It was, you know, work hard in school so that you can become, you know, the, the two main professions, a doctor or a lawyer. And that was, you know, the, the immigrant indication indicator of like success as a child. So um, obviously I, I tried to pursue that. I was actually pre-med at mm. UCLA for a good three years, uh, did not love it and did something else, but I actually ran away as far as I could. But there's, you know, a thing like you, the more you run away, I think the closer that you th get drawn back. And a lot of what you learn like in school um, is wonderful, but a lot of what you learn in life from your parents actually has some, it sinks in sometimes a little deeper. Yeah. So seeing their hard work, seeing um, their drive, seeing the passion that they put into the food and retaining our culture through our food and our family recipes. I mean, it, that goes, that goes beyond. Right. I mean, speaking of running away, this is so crazy. <laughs> I learned that you went to Thailand for like four years to work at the United Nations there. Uh, how, how did this, like, what, how did you make this decision to go to Thailand? And I'm curious, did you retain, like, did you speak Thai growing up with your family and you retained that language? And that's like, what, what went into your mind during this decision making process? So it was kind of, um, I was pre-med decided that medicine wasn't for me, but wanted to stay within like the, the health um, sector. So I pursued a public health master's program. Right. And during the two years of the program, um, the tsunami happened in mm -hmm. Thailand. So I was um, given an opportunity to intern in Thailand in um, with the UN. And so after I graduated, I was offered an opportunity with a nonprofit. And then that turned into a mm. job with the UN through um, a reproductive health population like entity. And so I, um, yeah, I mean, it, that's it, crazy. It, yeah. And I think like, I have to really be thankful for my parents in the fact that they really emphasize me retaining and my, my siblings retaining our Thai language skills. We didn't go to Thai language school, but Thai was ex like exclusive and enforced language in our household. And I think that it came for with a sacrifice of my parents' English ability because they could have easily said, oh, we want to improve our English mm. and we're going to just speak English with you guys all the time and, you know, and do that, which which they could. But instead, they decided, you know what, you will gain more by mm. you. 
English is everywhere else. At home, we're going to be all Thai, and you're going to speak Thai and learn Thai with us. But even with that, I think our Thai went to like basic things like, "Are you hungry? What are you going to eat? Where are we going today? Did you do your homework?" So it was a bit of a culture shock right. and a language shock when I returned back to the mother country and had to use Thai in a more formal setting. Yeah. So it was a quick kind of adjustment. Yeah. Did you visit Thailand growing up? Yes. Okay. I visited Thailand, but visiting Thailand or visiting your mother country, I think as an Asian American, through the lens of your family, is so different from going on your own. Right. And right. doing things on your own. So uh, when I worked there, I was living alone. Um, I was yeah commuting. I wow. actually had a car. Wow. I was motorbiking before I had a car. Wow. So yeah, I really settled in. And found my own like people and community that went beyond my family. That's amazing. You really just immerse yourself in in Thailand during those four years. During those, I tried, yeah. and I think the job allowed me to travel like through mm. many regions of Thailand that I think like really improved my like my skill as a chef mm-hmm. and my. Um, perspective of what Thai food is beyond the, what I grew up eating. Right. So it was eye-opening. Right. Um, there, were those four years like premeditated? Like were you, was that the duration or like, and if it wasn't, what was like the epiphany where like, oh, I need to go back home? Because um, <laughs> I read that a lot of your friends said it was career suicide, which I think, you know, from the outside looking in, it could it could definitely seem that way. Yeah, I, I, um, I, if I was wanted to stay with the UN, I think I could have still stayed till this day. And it was a very cushy job. The benefits of UN is 30 days off, paid days off, oh, wow. vacation days a year. Wow. Um, no tax. It's a non-taxed um, job. It's um, super comfortable. There's, you know, travel ports. I don't have to sell the dream, but it's very cushy. And you, you know, um, but I felt like, being still young and ambitious at that time, I wanted more. Mm. I wanted more. I wanted to make change. I wanted to make an impact. I signed on to work for the UN with bigger dreams of um, really making change. And then when I you know, heard from multiple people who've tenured into the UN, giving me career advice of, you know, just put your head down, do what you have to do. And at the end of the day, like you can just go home and, and relax. Don't work too hard. Don't make us all look bad. You know, these were like advice that I got from amazing people that I looked up to. And I'm like, that is not for me. Like, this is not within my DNA to just like put my head down and continue. And I've no like digs to the UN or people there. I mean, I I don't want to be banned, you know, but it was just, and I don't speak, I don't think it's everyone obviously, Mm. but the people that I did know, that's what they told me. And, And you can have a long fruitful career and if you have kids they'll pay for your education they'll move you around the world it's super cushy and i'm like no i don't i didn't sign up for this and during my period in thailand so i was working on health policy change uh thailand was going through five political administration oh wow in the four years there were coups after coups so any policy change that we tried to enact was just thrown out oh wow because of instability on top of the way that we work and and you know like just the thai word is like like take it easy Mm. like chill chill Mm. and Mm. so i i didn't work like that i worked i think with more 
of an entrepreneurial spirit and more of how this is the funds that we were given. These are the taxes that we got from the people of the world and every country donating. How much can we stretch? How much can we do with what we, with the funds that we were given? And um, with that, I felt like this is not for me and I need to do something. And I've been doing everything that I was told that I had to do as a good Asian American daughter, you know, go to school, get your college education, go to grad school. And this whole time, I'm going to start doing something for myself. And that was the, if you wanted to call it an epiphany, that was when I'm like, I'm going home and I'm going to recalibrate my compass and see what I want. And I actually, we took a good six weeks in South America, my siblings and I, we backpacked um, Peru and Bolivia. And it was an amazing time. We bonded. And I think it was like almost um, orientation or, or, you know, like that pre camp, like um, icebreaker for Mm -hmm. having to work with my siblings Mm -hmm. in a family business. So that was, yeah, we got all of our, our angst and our, our differences kind of worked out on that trip too. Yeah. What, What was the year that you, that you came back? The year was 2010. 2010. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. 2010, 2011, around there. Okay. And so, you know, you obviously brought up your siblings and and doing an icebreaker and all that. I, (laughs) I respect you so much. I don't know. I've tried working with my dad in the past. It's terrible. (laughs) It's very hard, you know, to work in the family business because there's so much at play. Um, It's not just business. It's, It's personal. It's, it's emotions. It's so many things that I think you can't really translate unless you've been through it. So talk to me about that family dynamic. I'm just curious how you guys have figured this out and, and how it works. I'm sure every day is, is, a, is a battle. Um, we're still working it out. Yeah. Like but like, we're still working it out. I don't think there's a, any, you know, there's a perfect scenario and uh-huh. all of that. Um, I mean, we come from different, like parents and I, different generations and the risks that we are willing or not willing to take is also very different. And I think running a business, especially a small business, is calculating those risks and making those decisions constantly. Um, my siblings and I have different, you know, risk adversities as well. So it's like making those big decisions and how we run our numbers and how we run our staff and how lean we run is also big too. But it's all a conversation. I mean, and I would say probably one thing that my family does very well is everyone is very vocal Mm. and it may sound like it's a bad thing because it, if my husband sits with my family and he's used to it now, but he's like, you guys are always arguing. There's something wrong with you. You guys are always arguing about something. And I think that's actually a good thing Mm. because we don't hold back Mm. when there is an idea um, and you know, we asked about it and I'm like, this is my idea. What's your idea? And we, we argue our idea to like the 10th power. And then you come up with the best idea and you have to put your egos aside, obviously. And it does get passionate sometimes because it feels personal, but you, you are vocal about it and everything gets out. And then after that decision is made, don't look back anymore. Don't look mm-hmm. back at what that person said or how it was said or how it was delivered and then just move on. I also I want to couple that like arguing everything out to like having 
short-term memory <laughs> is a good thing too in a family business because you learn to forget and forgive and kind of move on with the mm. next thing. Mm. Yeah. How do you, how are you all divvied up right now? Cause I know that your sister's a pastry chef, but can you kind of go a little bit into your different roles at the restaurant? So I think it's easy when we can say like, oh, Vanda is this and right. Kathy is a pastry chef. Kathy does way more than just mm-hmm. a pastry chef. Mm-hmm. My sister is an amazing savory chef too. She says that's her secret recipe that people don't know. And mm. she is a badass cook. Um, and so but she does the numbers as well, but we kind of div- divide it up. I do mainly the operation procedure. I also um, help oversee the kitchen. My mom is there in the kitchen almost daily right now as like our kitchen manager. Um, my husband does payroll and human resources. Um, my brother helps oversee a bit of the finances on the more like macro scope and how we want to leverage and reinvest in our, our business. He's an engineering, uh, has an engineering uh-huh. background. So he's very much a uh, left brain in that sense. Is it yeah, left brain? My sister and I do more of like the creative um scope and how you know the different activations the different menus the you know the creativity that i think COVID has afforded us to kind of test out all of our ideas um that's definitely my more my sister and i um and we you know we all have regular meetings i mean that's really important and are always on emails together on a text group family group that can grow to do like a hundred text messages in, in oh 20 God, minutes because we're just so vo- vocal and loud about everything. Yeah. That would, that's a true family business though, right there. Yeah. Honestly. I mean, this is a scope. We, we recently um, did masters of taste. Yeah. I was this year's uh, chef host mm-hmm. and we had a family meeting because we needed everyone on deck. Um, the meeting ended up being three hours and wow. we were plant like our argument was, what are we going to pack and how are we going to set up the front table to the point of like every inch is planned out. And I'm like, why are we getting into this much detail? And my brother is like, we have to measure everything out. We don't want to take more than we need to. We ended up taking two truck loads. We ended up changing everything. Uh, it wasn't to plan. It was fine. I mean, it worked out and it, you know, we had a, a wow. blast. We ended up playing tag uh, at the end of the night just to get like, all of our angst out and I did a big family hug. Um, But that's us. We love hard. We like hit hard and we, we work hard, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, wow. That's crazy. I mean, one of the, one of the other things that I thought, you know, I came to go see yesterday that I thought was really fascinating to me as someone who's been in the business is the longevity of the employees that you have. Like, I think it was, I believe his name was Carlos who was, who was started at 17 and now it's like 30 years old. Daniel. Daniel, yeah. yeah. And I'm just amazed by how long everyone has been there. Um, I believe from all of your staff, half of them have been at least there for like four plus years. Mandy was also amazing at the front. Like I'm just, I was so floored, honestly, by how much ownership your employees take into the business as if they're it's, it's their own. I mean, I think every employer wants that. And I think every employer wants staff that's there that long. What is your secret sauce in terms of like employee retaining retainment and how do you, how do you keep them on board? I mean, I've, I think I've been really lucky 
too, uh, with just being dealt with amazing people. Um, and yeah, Bandy, your Daniel, your Carlos, Gene, all 10 plus years um, in, with, with us. And I think it, it also is giving our team the ability to grow with us and grow in positions and positions of decision-making positions of growth. Daniel started as a dishwasher. He did not want to move out of dishwashing. And I remember asking him why. And he said, I don't want to fail. Like I know this job real well and I want to stick to it. And so I'm like, no, you can't it's you have to. And so it was like a bit of forcing him, like you have to, cause I know you can't. So he actually started to learn from a previous chef, uh, how to butcher all of our meats wow. and cut all of our meats. And, um, it was a you know, slow start and we gave, gave him opportunity to actually meet with real butchers in the industry. Uh, I remember taking him even to a fishmonger, um, to, you know, give him that training and the confidence and the knife skill practice to like butcher different types of meat and different types of protein. So it was a learn. I mean, and it's constant learning. And then afterwards we decided, you know what, you can't just be in the back line. You have potential to be on the front. Wow. So why don't you try the front? And he's like, no, I don't want to, I don't want to go, you know, and it's a constant like that with our, my team and the, the people who've worked a long time, they excel in what they do. And they want to kind of stick to that like specialization, but no, you need to get out of your comfort zone, go on the walk. And now he's also a walk chef. I think he can probably do everything right now. And same with like Miss Jean, who started as a server and now like helps me expedite mm -hmm. all of a lot of our food and the dishes. Um, she makes sure all the garnishes, you know, stay fresh and stay um up to date and are labeled and, and are, is meticulous about that and stays on top of everyone else on the team to make sure it's that it's really giving ownership. It's giving like the skill sets, the growth and the ownership, and also backing that up with pay mm -hmm. because no one wants to work more for less mm -hmm. and no one, you know, everyone wants to grow, but some people are, are a little afraid to make that move. Yeah. But making allowing them to feel comfortable um, and and to make mistakes, people will make mistakes and being forgiving in those mistakes because mistakes are learning opportunities mm -hmm. and we grow. All of us grow from it. No one was born to know how to do anything. Right. We all learned and it comes with practice mm -hmm. and we get better with that. And so um, that's my personal model and my family as well. And we kind of extend that to how we run our business and, and to our, our staff. And I mean, I want to say that we kind of like everyone's a family, but family is also very a toxic environment too. So I try, I, I think we might have to change that word as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, okay. When people say restaurant family, I feel like you guys embody that. Right. But they're, in, in my even personal experience, I feel like there are some business owners, not going to uh -huh. name who, that use that <laughs> term family, restaurant family. Yes. And it's actually a very, it, it creates a very toxic workplace because then you set up these expectations, familial expectations yes. from employees who are not really your family members. So, again, right. I think you're, you're a great example of it, but the, I've <laughs> seen people who have abused that as well. So, it is a... It's interesting because the restaurant industry, like you do spend so much time with your employees, right? And I emphasize that with my team. Like you, like, I mean, pe my kitchen isn't perfect 
people argue there's people who you know like team members that don't speak to each other for days on end <laughs> over like something so like what right, i right, think right. is so petty <laughs> but because they're there like more hours than they are sometimes at home mm-hmm. they there's just like, a lot of like personal that's true you know grudges that you as humans that we have and like we try to work it through you know and i think as owner as a chef as you know someone who as a colleague my job is to help facilitate that to make sure that we we get through the shift we provide quality food and you know we have fun along the way whatever that fun is you know we we try to um and not every shift will be fun you know not every shift will be amazing and we will have errors and we will have mistakes but we will recover yeah absolutely absolutely so just to trace it back, you 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 again came back 2010, right, to help out, and now it's been 12 years. There's a few thematic things I want to I want to cover, but before I get there, I, I think it'll be a miss to not talk about Aria Luke that you mentioned to me <laughs> as well. Like I really want to learn more about that story and oh. that just some of the stories and lessons that you learned doing that pop up, and um, you know, from what I understand, it was conceived because you were going through renovation. You wanted a way to retain your staff, correct? a way to retain our staff, a way to retain our guests. Um, So we, part of this like 12 year journey has been in 2012, uh, we were able to purchase the building that we're in and the unit next door, which I think is huge for restaurant owners to own our property. It's like, I want to say one of the biggest game changer Mm -hmm. and probably one of the reasons why we got through the pandemic um, as a restaurant. Uh, because of, you know, we, did, we didn't have to deal with the landlord for, mm-hmm. for the last 10 years. Um, and so that journey actually took us to open IR Luke. And Luke means child of. My sister and I uh, birthed this idea as a way of like passing of the torch and like what we learned at, you know, as, as restaurant kids, as someone growing up in a Thai restaurant, as second generation Thai Americans, you know, what we want to cook. And we want it to be more of our identity. So we had things on the menu like a tomahawk, uh, but made in a Thai, you know, tiger's cry way, or dishes like um, yam sardine, which is a lime juice fish sauce, canned sardine that I think most Thai kids grew up eating in some way, some form. Um, And we wanted to put that on the menu. We wanted the menu to really resonate. And it was a passion project. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was supposed to be temporary because this is a pop-up. We wanted to see, but we were very ambitious. We changed the menu on a a monthly base with different themes and different ideas. And I think it was at that time, it was 2017. It was probably a bit too progressive for our community. There were obviously people who loved, loved, loved it and came back you know, on a weekly base and every time we changed our menu. But then there were those in the community that still wanted our all of our classic hits, mm-hmm. like your pot Thai and your curry, you know, yellow, red, green, and your customized protein and your spice level that we all know, you know, most high restaurants typically do. Mm-hmm. So I think the idea in itself was was hard for many people in our community. And uh, when we moved the entire team over, 
um, and it was, you know, in preparation for, for construction, uh, we expanded the menu more to include all of the classic hits, the best hits from Ayara. Um, but at the same time, it wasn't a big enough restaurant. And even though it was only like a hop away from the parking lot, it did not allow us to recoup all of the revenue that we um, lost from, from closing down the original Ayara. Mm-hmm. So it was a very big learning moment yeah. for me, for my family, and a sense of responsibility because ma- many of the major decisions were, were things that I pressed on and the family, you know, backed me up on. I remember even just moving to Luke across the parking lot, the rain, it rained all night. We moved to 5 a.m. in the morning. It was my brother, sister, and I doing the final moves of all of our small wear and then realizing that we needed some stuff to open for the next day mm. and going to Ralph's and realizing the Ralph's across the street on Sepulveda and Ralph's clothes. And we're like, how is Ralph's clothes? I thought Ralph's was 24 hours. We've never been up that late in the night <laughs> to know that like it's not, it doesn't open that early. So, I mean, it's just, it's um like i said i think that you know we allow our teams the credit to to make mistakes sometimes that is a lot harder for ourselves um, and we are often most critical for ourselves so i think being kinder and knowing that hey mistakes happen and we learn from it and we move on mm. um has been has been my journey for the last few years and I've gotten over it. We're like working on getting this finally done, hopefully soon Um, done, meaning the restaurant construction and combining the two spaces as we plan. But at this moment, probably being a little smarter and how we do it and all those lessons are being applied. Right. How do you, and this is an extensive conversation I had with Justin as well. So I'm just curious at Anajak, I'm just curious to see what your take is on how do you balance that classic hits with the stuff that you want to do right and then there's also another quote that i love from you which was food that makes money versus food that we grew up with like is there a moment where a, that comes yeah 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 a moment where those two align yeah like how yeah, the cow soy like- story is great too by the way the cow soy story is wonderful how you had it on 2004 but it was like way too early and now you brought it back and it's like the best seller right one of the best sellers right it's like the brooklyn hipster yeah. um like con food now it's like everyone loves kalsai yeah yeah i mean i think it's timing too um first what was the first question was like retaining i think the, i mean there's a privilege to cook what to cooking what you really want to cook right um but there is a responsibility as a business owner to make sure that we run a business. And so I think combining those two is definitely, you know, possible. That middle space is actually growing larger. Mm -hmm. I think as people are becoming more accepting of how Thai food or Asian food is presented. Um, And I think it's education. It's like, we need to do a better job at educating and of, um, marketing as well how what thai food can be you know i think that the generations prior to us we they kind of all did like this cookie cutter you know because it was successful in one restaurant so another restaurant will kind of do it and why reinvent it when we can all kind of do it and do it different ways um but i think that you know it's it comes a time i think in like we're 18 years in that 
are afforded this kind of space to kind of get more creative. And I think for Ayara in this new kind of phase, I would love to see us kind of push that boundaries a little mm. more, be still be cautious about it. Like, I don't think I would ever take off pot Thai from my menu. And that is just simply because we sell the most of that, mm. you know, and it would be a horrible business idea mm. to do so. But at the same time, I want to introduce dishes like namprik. Namprik is chili water, chili relish. Every family has a recipe. Every Thai that I know grew up eating it in some form, but yet it's similar to like a salsa or guacamole, mm. but it's not in many menus in America. And why is that? You know, what is that? I want to dig that dive deeper into that. Mm. Have I would love to have a section on our menu in the future that is just dedicated to Namprik and showing how to eat this. And really it's not that hard and it's not that foreign and it's not so pungent if you really, you know, dive into it. Mm. People are getting educated. Like you said, education is a big thing. Or, you know, when I immigrated to, I was like six years old coming from Korea around the same time you came here. I vividly remember going to Asian restaurants and white people using like forks. Yeah. Now everyone uses it. I actually just sometimes I have this like epiphany. I'm like, I look around and everyone's using a chopstick really well, actually, maybe even better than Asian people. Yeah. <laughs> some, some Asian friends are terrible at using chopsticks. And yeah. I'm like, how incredible is this that during the duration that I've grown up here since, you know, the early 2000s till now, we've had this change in um, consumer behavior that you don't need to provide a fork because they're white. You know, that was a thing. And On that note, one of my dad's like biggest like mission in life is to teach people how to use a fork and a spoon together. Like as in eating Thai food, like your your spoon is in your dominant hand and your fork kind of shovels like the like food a, into right. your spoon. Yeah, you like coordinate the two using both hands. And it's like the very much the very Thai way of eating. I love it's that. It's always been a mission of his. When we had dine in, uh, our tables would be set with that. And it would be so surprising when people got it. Like they understood why we had a fork and a spoon. Mm. And then there are those who like, where's your chopsticks? Where's your knife? Can I have your knife? This fork is too small your spoon mm. is too big like they thought it was a soup spoon mm. where you know and so yes i would love for one day that people got all of that but i think it's part of that education it's part of um our movement and our push in how people understand not just our food but their culture yeah. and how to eat it yeah, yeah and how to enjoy it well so you know we, we touched on like non-asian people right but this is another whole <laughs> thing like asian on asian Hate. I don't want to say hate, I mean, but you know, dislike or uh, complaints or rants. Yes. I, for the, the longest time, have been trying to find a solution. Maybe this is just a question I need to ask everybody to interview. Um, you know, coming from a, a Korean Michelin star restaurant in New York, trust me, I got that all the time. Like, why is this so expensive, right? And I think we touched on it yesterday, too. Thankfully, Korean food is still like somewhat, I don't want to say exotic, but somewhat unknown where I feel like we can price it a little bit accordingly and there's not much um, compar comparables. But with Thai food, it's traditionally, historically has been on the cheaper side here in the in the, in the US, you know, mm -hmm. especially like lunch specials and stuff like that. So yeah. just, just talk to me about some of your personal first-handed experiences with this. How do we educate I mean, our fellow Asians? <laughs> 
I feel like within the Asian food, like the, the price and value, Japanese scores high. And you For see sure. that by even the Michelin stars that are given to Japanese food, right? The score is the highest. And you have like Indian and Korean kind of falling and Chinese even falling like mm-hmm. that. And then Thai falls like at the most bottom. Yeah, I agree. In with terms that. of the price that people are willing to pay and the value that people are are giving it, right? While I am no no digs to like Korean food, right? No, not at all. Thai food, I feel like uh like you go to Korean barbecue, it's like unmarinated meat sometimes. You grill it yourself, right? Um, and you uh you pay quite a bit for it, right? Thai food, there's the paste alone in a curry. There's That's probably true. 30 ingredients. That's true. And you have to have each thing blossom up, right? There are people that use pre-made paste. Okay, give that whatever. But at the same time, the even layering and cooking of those dishes. You don't just cook it by throwing everything in. Each layer has to blossom, has to bloom mm. to get that right like composition. And even cooking pad thai. Cooking pad thai is not easy. It's one of the harder dishes to cook and to get it well. And um, but then at the same time, we can't charge. You know, my, I think ten years ago, my dad's like, "Well, you, do you think we can ever charge fifteen dollars for pad thai?" You know, fast forward to twenty twenty two, we charge fifteen dollars for pad thai because we can't do it any other way. Everything has kind of been we've we've priced out of that low price. Um, with that said, I mean, I think that. The, some of my most critical friends when we go out to eat and the are, are my Asian American friends who equate off, oftentimes equate authenticity to price where they go like, oh, we're going to go to a mom and pop. And it has to like it's it's cheap. It's not the serve. Don't expect, you know, great right, right. service. Shitty but service. the food is solid. <laughs> yeah. The food is solid, you know, and I wonder and I often like say, you know, I wonder how long they can even do this for. Mm. And if you respect their craft if they charge more will you be willing to pay more you know some people like of course i'll pay more but i've seen friends who like uh they've like sold out because now they're they're paying people they're giving people insurance like health insurance and benefits and paying their staff really well so they honestly have to charge more so they you know they they no longer go or no go as often because of the the price is a a lot higher and it's no longer deemed authentic in a way, whatever that authenticity is, you know, because I feel like that is in itself is a different podcast, Arnold, that we can talk about of how we put that, that label onto ethnic cuisines. Yeah, no, authenticity is definitely, that has to be (laughs) the authenticity podcast for sure. I just... It's it's a topic I'm very passionate about as well, just because we've been so conditioned to be to expect certain prices for our own type of food. But then, yes. but I think um, to your point about Chinese restaurants or mom and pop restaurants having to price that high, it doesn't make it just for me doing the math. It doesn't make sense. Like, how yeah. are you charging the? That means that there's some things that are not happening on the back end, right? Like you yes. said. They're not getting insurance. They're not getting the dental and division. They're not getting their 401k. They're not getting anything. Um, they're getting the bare minimum, if if that, right? So I think that's just something um, that I'm glad you touched on because I think more people listening, if you are not really in the industry and you're like a foodie or whatever, and I think those people actually are the ones that need to know this, like the foodies and the food influencers and the people that have that voice that, mm-hmm. you know, I see so many TikToks about. Oh, the cheapest eats and uh, SGV, like the cheapest yeah. eats. I'm like, oh, I, I always cringe because yeah. why are we making that 
a big right it's almost Topic. like exactly yeah. or it's yeah. like the defining like factor with, right right of choosing a rest of, of an asian restaurant because it's cheap yeah so yeah yeah, uh, yeah it's just so crazy to me um i think we all have to understand too that we vote with the dollars that mm -hmm. we spend mm -hmm. and so however we spend we spend on you know um this or that we have to know what goes into that mm. and i want consumers i think it's improved over the years and i think that is something but we we as i think an asian community probably have has to do better as the consumer, but also as the provider as well mm. as to, you know, we provide these. I was um, at a conference recently where an Asian American restaurant actually provides full health benefits, meaning that there's very little premiums that their team has to pay. Everyone is on a salary. Um, tip is like wrapped within and it's fast casual. It's actually quite amazing. And I, I forgot the name of the, I'm sorry. I forgot the name of the, the place, but it's super progressive what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And I, I really do hope like the industry as a whole changes, but I think Asian American food has a lot of more catching up to do as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 100%. As a last question, right, and uh, we're still in, like, we're in, at the end of Q1 here in, in 2022. Uh, you have a lot of exciting things up ahead. <laughs> so I would love for you to touch on a little bit about this, this space you mentioned and that you showed me and Calvin yesterday. Uh, also, you shared with me that your mom was retiring as well. So we'd love to hear about, like, what's, yeah. what's coming up for you and your family. First off, my mom is retiring, but I don't think it's like a, Ayara is like her fourth child. I mean, we can kind of fifth child if you count my dad too, as one of her kids, because she wants, she should retire, but I honestly feel like she still will be, it's a family business. So still being very much involved, but the space next door, we've been working on this since 2012. Um, it's coming to fruition quite soon. We'll be putting in a full bar, expanding our kitchen and hopefully introducing some new and exciting dishes to our menu and dishes that, you know, my sister and I, put on the Luke menu, mm. some of it, and some that we feel is fitting of this time as well. Um, and growing our business from there and hopefully returning to indoor dining again, because our, you saw the condition of our dining room is not ready for, for dine-in quite yet. So we've been takeout since the pandemic and it's still been pretty good. Our community has been quite supportive of the, our journey. Um, we should be done, I'm hoping, beginning of next year. So this is quite a long one this entire year. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, I cannot wait. I was I feel like that space <laughs> has so much potential. And uh just congrats on everything. I feel like to your point of owning your own real estate and your property, like that is a huge game changer um, that I think a lot of restaurateurs and chef owners need to really think about and plan for. Like it, it only makes sense to own the property that you're in, especially if you've been operating for, for so long. So. Um, yeah. I mean, I think as a small business owner, you know, we need all get for me, I can't speak for everyone, but right, getting right. creative and thinking bigger than you are and constantly thinking that next step bigger. And if that is your plan, I think that some people run businesses differently and they just like 
you know, the status mm-hmm, quo and it's mm-hmm. a steady income and it's not hard. I've never been, I don't think I've, it's been weaved into my DNA. It's always like a growth and how, how far we want to take this. I don't think Ayara will ever be like a national chain or we want to um, open multiple restaurants, uh, other shops. Uh, but we are as a family, not ready to share it yet, thinking of that next step. And awesome. so we hope that, you know, those who are listening and those in our community join us in, in on our journey to our next steps. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, it's just, it's already an institution, you know, by all means. So <laughs> congrats on everything you've, you've accomplished so far. And uh, yeah, huge fan. Arnold, I'm also a big fan. Thank you for bringing this community together and for documenting all of our, our stories. Oh, it's it's honestly my pleasure. I love it. I love what I do too. So anyways, thank you. Thank you again for your time. Really appreciate thank it. Thank you. And that wraps it up for our weekly welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you, Vanda, for your time and for your hospitality the other day. Really appreciated you and your amazing staff. They're incredible. I think you've done a wonderful job with your team. And I think that speaks so much about you, actually, and speaks so much volumes about the ownership and the management there that's in place at Arotai. So um, really terrific. I can't wait for what's to come. and so excited for the next chapter. That's it for today. And I'll see you next week on Weekly Welcome. Bye.